This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Hello and welcome to Heritage Matters, a programme brought to you by the Southern Heritage Trust and sponsored by Ryman Healthcare. I'm Judy Southworth, filling in for Dougal Stevenson, who's taking a well-deserved break. In this programme, Gregor Campbell looks at an unusual murder case defended by lawyer Alf Hanlon. Bill Southworth interviews a medical anthropologist who did her thesis on the 1918 Spanish flu outbreak. And Joe Gaylor covers the history of the late lamented Stock Exchange building. Alf Hanlon is regarded as perhaps our most talented 20th century defence lawyer. These skills were called on when he appeared for a man charged with murdering an Allenton widow and trying to cover it up by burning her body. This report from Gregor Campbell. On March 26, 1902, the rural quiet of the little Tyree township of Allenton was rudely disturbed by the tidings of the death, under distressing circumstances, of a well-known woman whose charred body was recovered from the blazing debris of a rude hutment in which she had been living intermittently with a man who was later charged with being the cause of her death. A coroner's jury found that death had been caused by the woman being stabbed with a carving fork and that the house had been set on fire at the same time, but the verdict stated that there was no evidence to show who was responsible. Hugh Sweeney, who was under arrest when the inquest was held, was later committed to the Supreme Court on a charge of murder, but after a two-day's trial was acquitted. The horrible circumstances of the woman's death and the sordid details of the events leading up to the tragedy aroused general public interest in the case, not only in the immediate locality, but very much further afield as well. The victim was Mrs Annie Sinnott, the widow of a once prominent farmer and contractor of the Waihola district, who had died several years previously. Her private life was a minor tragedy in itself, since from the time of her husband's death, she seemed gradually to lose her grip on life altogether, developing an unfortunate addiction to drink and a moral standard very much lower than that to which she had been raised. Despite the efforts of her family to reclaim her, she degenerated from a strikingly handsome and generally popular figure to the merest shadow of her former self. She had been living with Sweeney, a labourer about 50 years of age, for some time prior to her tragic death, and both were prone to frequent bouts of intemperance. Latterly, the accused had been living in a small hut by himself on the opposite side of a small paddock from where Mrs Sinnott lived, and it was generally known that quarrels between them were numerous and bitter. On the evening of March 26, neighbours and passers-by had their attention drawn to one of the common disturbances at Mrs Sinnott's hut, by the sound of high-pitched and agitated voices, and a short time afterwards, the local storekeeper, who lived close at hand, noticed that the house was on fire. The alarm was raised, but when a party of helpers arrived, the flames had a strong hold and were bursting out through the front wall. In the absence of firefighting appliances of any kind, the unsubstantial building was completely gutted. As the fierceness of the blaze increased, the roof fell in, and the body of Mrs Sinnott could be seen lying on the floor. Attempts had already been made to force an entry into the hut, but without avail, the heat and smoke driving the would-be rescuers back. When the body was discovered, desperate efforts were made to remove it from the fire. The site of the cottage had been excavated out of the hillside, 
At the rear of it was a sloping bank, and between this and the back wall there was a shallow ditch. With the aid of props and a rake, and working from the top of the bank, some of the spectators contrived to drag the burning body into the ditch and then up the bank. But, although they protected their hands with old sacks, the heat was so great that they were forced to let it roll back into the ditch. At another attempt, it was recovered and presented a gruesome appearance. The chest wall was almost entirely burnt away, and a carving fork could be seen completely transfixing the heart. Sweeney was present at the fire, having just returned in an intoxicated condition from the Ellington Hotel. When he arrived, he was heard to ask some bystanders to try and get the old girl out of the fire. Later, he accused one of his neighbours of having set fire to the hut. After the recovery of the body, the police saw to it that the carving fork was left just as it had been found until a post-mortem examination could be made. It was removed after the post-mortem and put carefully away in a box, wrapped up in cotton wool so that the prongs could not be touched or their condition in any way altered. The reason for these elaborate precautions was that, as the prong points protruded through the heart, their condition and appearance might be expected to establish whether the fork had been plunged into the body before or after the burning took place. I defended Sweeney, and when he was committed to the Supreme Court for trial, I realised that the evidence of the carving fork would play a very important part in the case. The only thing to do then, if such evidence were to be adequately met, was to undertake a few experiments of my own. The tests I made were exhaustive, and, I fear, not a little trying to members of my household and some of my neighbours. To facilitate my experiments, I first bought several old carving forks from a second-hand dealer. Armed with these, I descended on the family butcher, and from him I procured some pig's hearts, which resemble very closely the human heart. When I reached home, I stabbed one of these hearts with a fork, piercing the organ after the manner of the transfixing of the heart of Mrs. Sinnott. I then burnt fork and heart in the kitchen range, and carefully noted the effect of the burning on the exposed portion of the fork prongs. My next move was to burn another heart, stick it with another of the forks, and let it cool, again studying the reaction of the metal at the tips of the prongs. After a couple of nights of this sort of thing, I was summarily dismissed from the kitchen and told to continue my diabolical practices in the wash house. But here again I encountered opposition, for now the unsavoury odours of burning flesh that had previously filled the house were wafted from the low chimney of the copper to the protesting nostrils of the man next door, who inquired very indignantly what the hell I thought I was doing. My end was finally achieved, however, and I provided myself with a lot of interesting data which should have proved invaluable later on. But all my work was rendered useless and unnecessary when I elicited from the medical witnesses in cross-examination that they had not cut the fork out of the heart, but had pulled it out. As cavalier treatment of an important piece of evidence, that was bad enough. But they then proceeded to experiment with the thing on the liver, jabbing it in and withdrawing it again two or three times, thus polishing the prongs and completely destroying the only valuable piece of evidence in the case. Of course, the question immediately arises, if the woman was not stabbed to death with the fork, how could its presence in her heart be explained? That was not difficult. It came out in evidence that a kitchen dresser containing the usual assortment of household cutlery stood against the back wall of the hut. When it was burnt, the contents fell to the floor where the body of the woman lay. When the body was dragged out through the rear of the building, some of the cutlery went with it and lay in the ditch from which the corpse was ultimately retrieved. 
It was quite reasonable to suggest, therefore, that when the body rolled down the bank after the first attempt to recover it, it fell on the fork, which then entered the heart. As the condition of the fork had been completely altered by the polishing it received at the post-mortem examination at the hands of the medical witnesses, it was impossible for the Crown to negative the theory. The consternation with which the Crown prosecutor heard the facts about the experiment elicited in the cross-examination was almost ludicrous. That is Alf Hanlon's account of the trial of Mr Sweeney. It seems almost unnecessary to say that Mr Sweeney was acquitted, although his reprieve from the hangman's rope was only a short one, for he died of a throat cancer in hospital some 18 months later. The two bodies can be found in Allenton Cemetery in unmarked graves, presumably quite close to each other. I'm Gregor Campbell for Heritage Matters. With the COVID-19 flu pandemic on our minds, we thought you'd be interested in hearing about an earlier pandemic, the 1918 Spanish flu, which ravaged Dunedin and killed an estimated 40 million people worldwide. Dr. Ros McKechnie, a health anthropologist, did an honours thesis on how the Spanish flu affected Dunedin. She talks to Bill Southworth. First case was identified in Kansas and United States, and with the movement of the American troops and with the increased worldwide travel at the time through to Europe, that's how it carried. Now, President through. Trump won't like that, will he? Because no. he loves calling the current uh, pandemic the Chinese virus. So <laughs> yes. it wasn't the Spanish flu, it was the American it flu. It was the American <laughs> flu, really. It was only called, I don't know, no one seems to know how it got the name Spanish flu. The only clues were that the then King of Spain fell ill with it. So that's kind of the connection with, with flu. But it didn't originate in Spain, and Spain was affected just as much as everybody else was. Right, and I understand that because the war was on, there was censorship in all the other countries, but not in Spain, which wasn't that's a combatant. Right. So it, the publicity got out from there. Yes, right. yes, that's correct. Now, how many actually died in New Zealand, and how many in Otago? There were around uh, 6,716 deaths in New Zealand from influenza itself and, 900, and a further 953 deaths from complications of influenza. Now those figures are conservative because in the early stages of the epidemic the cause of death was not necessarily down as influenza. It may have been down as bronchitis or pneumonia or other lung diseases. Um, and it was, in fact, because of the epidemic that influenza became a notifiable disease. Yes. Worldwide, what's the estimate of the number of deaths? It was estimated to be 20 to 40 million deaths. Good heavens. Worldwide. So it was, a, it was a huge thing. In Otago, the deaths were 223 deaths in rural Otago and 273 deaths in Dunedin. The standard treatment was to take ammoniated quinine as a medicine or sniffing a solution of one teaspoon of boric acid, a tablespoon of baking soda and a teaspoon of salt dissolved in a glass of hot water. <laughs> now, hasn't the allegation that quinine can work surfaced again in the current pandemic? It has. It has. Was that but I'm, I'm, not a, I'm not a pharmacist. Was so that, that was sourced once again to the White House, was it? Yes, right. apparently. There, were, there, were some, there was quite a lot of work done on quinine. I mean, quinine's used to treat malaria, so and malaria is a fever-type illness. So I guess in terms of treating fevers and things, quinine, the quinine would have been would be effective. Well, in this sort of 100 years or so, presumably methods of modern treatment are much more advanced than they were then. They are. 
They are, yes, indeed. I mean, they, they had instructions for treatment were to gargle morning and night with a weak disinfectant solution. So that wouldn't have been pleasant at all. Usually Condes crystals or potassium permanganate was, was recommended at a strength of one to a thousand. But I whether remember it, Condes crystal when I was a kid. We were, had to gargle it when we had a sore throat. That's right. That's right. Well, that's where that came from. The, 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 that's People were instructed to do that during the epidemic. Be out in the open as much as possible. Avoid overcrowded and heated atmospheres. Starting to sound a little bit familiar here. Um, attend to personal hygiene. And when you notice the initial symptoms to stay home and look after yourself. What would the Dunedin streets have looked like at the height of that pandemic? Pretty empty. The city was basically stopped. The movement of people were limited due to a lack of transport, and that was not only because things were shut down, but also because a lot of the people who worked in transport, because everyone travelled by trains or trams in those days, succumbed to the illness as well. So the worker, number of workers were just not available. And how well did the um, public cooperate with those restrictions? They cooperated really well. Don't forget, this was during a war, and people were used to deprivations and having to... You know, listen to the government and do things because of the war effort. Things were a little bit different too because of the newspapers were generally the way that people got their information. There were a lot of public meetings held and there were sort of plans put in place. So people were busy volunteering and helping out. The medical students played a huge role in the whole thing. Generally, the first and second year medical students went to the hospitals to assist with nursing duties there. Third year medical students acted in more of a medical capacity. The only thing they could not do was sign the death certificates. The fourth and fifth year medical students went to the local bureaus that were set out around the place and went to the rural areas to assist the rural doctors there because there were some rural areas where there just weren't any doctors. Funerals were abbreviated and simplified. Cremation started to grow in popularity because at the time, of course, people had to be buried within 24 hours. They couldn't be embalmed. They were buried in muslin with soaked in disinfectant. Tangihanga were prohibited and funerals generally were prohibited. More pharmacies were spread throughout the towns because often the only shops that were open were the pharmacies and that's why you often see in a small town there might be two or three pharmacies and that's why because they, were, they needed to be accessible to people. But no one actually knew how the 1980 virus was transmitted. There was um, a story that to try and find out the a group of prisoners in America were taken to the hospitals and got coughed and sneezed and over and all the rest of it and exposed very much to the virus. Of those 200 prisoners, only one caught the virus and he was one that sneaked out and went to visit his family who were ill with the virus. <laughs> so, ha Having studied this 1918 pandemic so closely, how did you feel when this particular pandemic started and how do you feel about the way we've reacted to it? I think we have reacted entirely appropriately to it. Going hard and going early was absolutely the right thing to do. Um, again, I'm not a scientist as such. I'm an I'm a anthropologist of health, So, but I have got a postgraduate diploma in public health. I think doing what we have done was absolutely the right thing to do. It 
we can see the evidence from overseas now with, with the deaths and the mayhem. It's interesting to watch the progression of this virus. It seems to be mutating in different ways, so hence we've got the waves. The 1918 one also had waves of the virus. There was the first wave that wasn't quite so bad, the second wave, which was the devastating one. And then there was actually a third and fourth wave later on that was less serious. So, um, yeah, it's been interesting watching the progression of this virus. Dr. Ros McKechnie was interviewed by Bill Southworth. The Dunedin Stock Exchange was one of the most magnificent buildings in Dunedin. Its demolition in the late 1960s is now regarded as a piece of destructive vandalism which would not be allowed today. Joe Gaylor has been looking at its history. When we think of Dunedin, our Bluestone Railway Station and Municipal Chambers are the icons that spring to mind. But for much of last century, there was another, older, Omaru stone landmark that was up with the best, the Stock Exchange Building, in the area that took its name. Among those who remember this grand beauty with its clock tower, it is still the big one that got away on us. I'm Joe Gaylor, and even though I was only two when the Stock Exchange came down in 1969, I wanted to study this extinct building for my history degree to learn why we allowed this destruction exactly 100 years from when it was built. What was going through our minds? I found a much more complex story than I expected. In 1866, as it rose from the ground, the city's new post office was already controversial. In fact, the seeds of its comparatively short existence were already being sown. A 1,000-word attack in an Otago Daily Times editorial in 1866 that was most likely penned by the newspaper's editor and later our Prime Minister, Julius Vogel, treated the construction with open hostility. The government's real intention in building this, the paper raged, was to use this costly pile as a power base to wield control and milk the province of new stamp duties. Its true object is to stand in our midst as a parable in stone, sham and real, bricks and mortar. Its final cause is to be, to us, a moral teacher, preaching eloquently, however dumbly, against the evils of provincialism. Deception is incorporated in its very design. Early photographs tell the story of a stone building that utterly transformed the frontier city. At 150 feet wide and 120 feet tall, it rivaled the municipal chambers for size and bulk. Built in the Palladian style, its Italian and Grecian features, columns, moulded arches and carved spandrels, earned wide admiration. Its architect was William Mason, Dunedin's first elected mayor. Its architectural historians later described it as the finest achievement of Mason's career, which included Government House in Auckland. All Saints Church in North Dunedin was another of his designs and still stands today. But Mason's post office was... Awesomely grand, an imposing edifice, reflecting the province's gold receipts and the parochial importance these brought with them. The building's early critics had a funny way of showing how much they liked the building. 
In fact, they wanted it. Bogle's newspaper editorial signalled the ambitions to get the government to hand the prestigious pile to the Provincial Council. His co-conspirator, canny Scotsman James MacAndrew, Provincial Superintendent, was also working hard behind the scenes. As settlers flocked here, Dunedin needed costly public facilities, including a music hall, a museum and a university. The building presented itself as a gift for those functions if the North Island-based government could be persuaded to give it up. In 1869, the government admitted the building exceeded postal requirements and duly handed it over, post office design and all. Triumphantly, MacAndrew conscripted the Grand Hall for the Citizens' Ball to honour the visit of Queen Victoria's second son, Prince Alfred, in 1869. According to the Otago witness, the ball surpassed anything of the kind previously witnessed in the city. The walls were draped with banners and the hall entrance profusely decorated. His Royal Highness sat on a dais at the top of the hall, surrounded by crimson curtains, surmounted with a golden crown. Seated next to the prince and raising the toast, James MacAndrew must have felt incredibly proud of his accomplishment. As the prince said, It has been a great satisfaction to me, as it must be to all Englishmen. To find in New Zealand the oldest and most respected of names has been adopted as the name of the principal city of this important colony. Julius Vogel also joined the glittering affair. Yet oddly, William Mason was not on the guest list for the evening's festivities. In 1871, the building became the colony's university, but by the middle of the 1870s it was inadequate and there were too few classrooms. The university moved to North Dunedin and so began the building's slow decline as it was passed and remodelled between owners and tenants, the Colonial Bank and the Stock Exchange proprietors. The magnificent arches were walled in by arcade-style shops. The Great Hall was divided into offices with its ornate painted ceiling hidden. And as the building's function in Dunedin society became confused, so did public perceptions. Its fortunes reflected the cities as population declined following the gold rush and jobs disappeared and cities such as Wellington rose to prominence. Between 1905 and 1955, the building was altered so much one commentator called it an indistinguishable hulk. They said, Not content with having destroyed the symmetry of perhaps the most beautiful building in New Zealand by the erection of a row of vulgar shop fronts, they've now begun their self-imposed task of making the place a veritable eyesore. Over time, the building's important history was also obscured. The Depression years didn't help, and by the 1940s, Dunedin's exchange area was neglected as the city centre moved north to the Octagon. A movement began within local political circles that to rejuvenate this quarter and make it modern, the exchange building needed to go. Large buildings of modern design now tower above the familiar structures of last century, 
At least they are clean, new and imposing, in proof there is still vitality and confidence in the city. So wrote Casey MacDonald in his 1965 History of Dunedin. The sale of the building in 1954 to the government's Ministry of Works was the final nail in the coffin. By the 1960s, I found documentation that there was a ministry policy to let the building run out. This meant no more maintenance apart from the bare necessities. No wonder it was seen as an earthquake and fire risk. Added to this was the debate that if the building was to go, what would replace it? As they cannot now, Dunedin people make it plain they could not stomach an empty, windswept site in the middle of their city. A debate raged between the DCC and government for much of the 1960s as to when and how it was to be replaced. In 1967, a Ministry of Works engineer showed just how dangerous his own ministry's policy of letting the building run out was. I cannot state strongly enough that retention of this building, occupied or unoccupied, constitutes an unjustifiable risk. Earthquake or no earthquake. And steps should be taken to demolish it at the very earliest. The number of people affected by damage to the building would be high. Also, the Dunedin City Council was a it. Too often, it appears in pictures, giving a poor impression of the city. But such comments in the newspaper were not always swallowed. In 1968, one daughter of Dunedin wrote, Surely New Zealanders are not such philistines that they don't know the value of what they're losing. Please can you publish an early photograph of the building so that the people of Dunedin can see the beauty which still exists underneath the incubus of shameful neglect. But retention and restoration were never to be. In 1969, she stubbornly came down after they brought in the biggest wrecking ball they could find from Christchurch. Some cried as they watched, and others took parts of the masonry as keepsakes. A few years later, John Wycliffe House emerged. The story of this loss of a building of such major historical and architectural importance to New Zealand can be better understood when viewed alongside a whirlwind of change as immigrants aspired to build their community and a city, and how political decisions in the battle between the provinces for funding, infrastructure and supremacy created their casualties. The story of the all-but-forgotten exchange building is a case in point. It was threatened from the very beginning. Its story mirrored the hopes and dreams of the city. In contrast, the buildings that retained the purpose for which they were built, the railway station, the council chambers, the law courts, all stood the test of time. This is Joe Gaylor reporting for Heritage Matters. This programme, which will be repeated on Sunday at 7pm, is kindly sponsored by Ryman Healthcare and brought to you by the Southern Heritage Trust. Ryman Healthcare prides itself on offering some of the most resident-friendly terms in New Zealand.
Ryman Healthcare's Francis Hodgkins and Yvette Williams Retirement Villages in Dunedin offer the very best of retirement living and care. For more information and to discuss your retirement living options, please phone Kate on 455-7936. Ryman Healthcare, supporting Southern Heritage Trust and the Heritage Matters Programme. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.